Well, in the email that I sent out to you, I asked you to look at the readings. And uh, they're terrifically long readings. And we have very long readings at this point in Lent. Because, of course, um, the catechumens are being taught something important. And so we have these extended readings of things especially, that especially John is intent on making sure that we understand. And if my memory serves, this episode here uh, of the raising of Lazarus appears only in John. It doesn't appear in the Synoptic Gospels. So we, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And um, it's very important uh, that we hear this, especially at this time of Lent. And it was important for the catechumens to hear this too. Well, today they would have heard this at the Church of Sante Eusebio in Rome, the Station Church. The Colic Church of San Vito in Marcello Livier on the Esquiline Hill, and uh, right next to the ancient Arch of Gallienus. And so we gather there at the Colic, and then we march up to Santa Eusebio, which uh, was a church that developed from a house, the house of the heroic priest Eusebius, who was a martyr under. Uh, an Arian emperor, um, Constantinus II, I think, in uh, the 4th century, where the Arians, uh, first of all, once who believed that, that, uh, that Jesus was a creature, well, that, that the Son actually was a creature, that the Son is lesser than the Father, that there was a time when the Son was not. And that was kind of the battle cry uh, between the Arians and the non-Arians, that there was a time when he was not, or there was never a time that he was not. Because if it can be established that the Son um, is actually a creature, then he is uh, not God in the same way that the, that the Father is. And there were uh, many who believed this heresy. In any event, here we have the, in the Gospel according to John, in the 11th chapter, the Lord has come to Bethany, and this is kind of a haven for the Lord. This family um, of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus is a kind of a haven for the Lord, I think. He comes here, uh, certainly more than once in the Gospel accounts, gives you the, the sense that he came there often. And he loved them in a very special way and um, was intimate with them. And, uh, you know, it goes to show that everybody needs to have a place to go, needs to have people to whom he can go and, and, and well, I don't, it's, it's kind of hard to, to talk about our Lord and Satan just be himself because he certainly, um, wouldn't have had that problem, and yet in his humanity, he certainly uh, did need uh, a place to go, a kind of a haven. And I, so I, it's perhaps my imagination, but I think of this family of these three, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, as being a sort of a haven of the Lord. And he loved them very much, and you can tell that he did, because of how deeply moved he was.
um, so much so that in in uh, in in at least an English uh, rendering of the Bible, we have I think the shortest verse. Um, Jesus wept, and uh, it's the entire verse. Lacrimatus est Jesus in in Latin. And so everyone understands that the Lord um, is deeply moved here. But they misunderstand something about his motive. You'll hear in here that he, that they thought, well, if he had been there here, he wouldn't have died. Lazarus wouldn't have died. He could, if he had been here, he could have done something. And so why didn't he come? And even the disciples are a bit uh, astonished at this because the Lord stayed away after having heard that Lazarus was was dying. He stayed away, and he said that he was staying away for a reason, in order that God's glory could be made manifest. So, we have here a tension. There's a tension between the way God loves and the way that we love. When we love, we rush to the side of our loved ones. God on the other hand, has other plans sometimes for our suffering. Our suffering at times is permitted by God so that his own glory can be made manifest. You think about the lives of the saints. When you read the lives of the saints, what do you find? Well, very often what you find time and time again, saint after saint after saint, is a tale of is a tale of suffering, uh, and this is especially the case with the martyrs. If you go and you take a look at the Roman Martyrology, um, which is a liturgical book and something that we should we should have for a long time. I had uh, my copy of the Roman Martyrology open on a legio, like a book, you know, for a bookstand, like I have on the altar here. I had it open, and I would change the page every day to the new page of the Martyrology which day by day tells the, the stories of the, the saints. So many of them are martyrs, and so many of them died in particularly horrible ways. And uh, there was a great deal of suffering. The great saints that we think of today um, suffered a lot. You know, for example, even the, the saints that I have on the, behind me here, the relics of saints that I have, I look up there and I see there's Maximilian Colby. Well, there's a man who suffered. Uh, Therese de Lisieux, who had her illness and so forth, and I could go through all of them, and they all had their, their sufferings. And it manifested, their sufferings in a way manifested the glory of God. Well, here we have the, the ultimate way, a man who's been dead for four days. Now, in the first century, uh, the first century Jews um, did not embalm. Uh, what they would do is they would load the bodies up with spices and herbs and things, and the body would decompose, and then a year afterwards they would come, and they would take the bones and put them in what was called an ossuary, which is a small uh, box, uh, stone stone box. And so, by this point, four days, they also believed that the soul was absolutely thought to have been departed by the fourth day. By the, actually, by the third day. So this is the day after um, every legal and spiritual thought of 
life uh, had departed. And so here comes the Lord. He stayed away long enough so that there was absolutely no question um, of, of any sort of life in Lazarus. So, he raises Lazarus from the dead. The people, and there's one other thing that I want to underline, underscore before I move to my main point here. During the chatter of the people um, who were wondering if the Lord, you know, if he had been there, Lazarus wouldn't die. There's actually a reference in here. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And we just had that gospel in our readings uh, in this important period of testing and trial and certain rites for the ancient catechumens. And at that time, uh, when I read that gospel about the man, uh, the healing of the man who was born blind, I mentioned that that was important, that whole episode was read, another long gospel like this one, was read because of its connection with baptism. And I went into the details of how that making of the clay with spittle and so forth and the washing and all that is related to baptism because the outward signs of the Lord in his earthly ministry, the dicta et facta, the things he said and the things that he did, can be then carried across into the institution of the sacraments. And though he may have instituted the sacrament of baptism at his own baptism, there are other things that he did along the way which mysteriously then flesh out or fill out the meaning of the sacrament. And so we have this whole theme of illumination and sight and light and all that and that. Well, similarly with this gospel, this gospel also tells us something about the institution of one of the sacraments that has yet been instituted. This raising of Lazarus from the dead is probably connected to the sacrament of penance, uh, which everybody calls reconciliation these days, so that's great. But it's the sacrament of penance. This is the sacrament by which Jesus Christ himself desires us to be reconciled with him. That's how important it is. This is the means by which he wants us to be re reconciled. We have to contemplate that. He himself wants it this way. And so we should be making use of it as much as possible. And priests and bishops out there who are not instituting it in their in the sphere of their control are going directly against the desire of the Lord. So anyway, I had mentioned that the sacrament, uh, that the healing of the man born blind was foundational to the sacrament of baptism. Now we have a situation where the Lord raises Lazarus from the dead, which only Christ can do. And in forgiving our sins, only God can do that. 
only God. So Christ, only God, can forgive us our sins. But there's a manner of delegation involved. He delegates his own authority to bind and to loose to um, his priests. And so what do we have here? We have a situation where the man rises from the dead, and then the Lord says, unbind him. So there's a delegation of the unbinding. Remember, when they, in, the ancient, in the ancient world, they would, they would use wrappings, and they would bind uh, the bodies of the dead and put something over their head and tie it down. They were all, they were basically all tied up um, as they lay in their tombs. And so the Lord tells them to unbind him. Let's see, how does, what does it actually say here? The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him, and let him go. Only the Lord raises from the dead. Only the Lord forgives sins. But he delegates the unbinding to his priests. They're the ones who absolve. And then afterwards, the penitent walks away with the true freedom of a child of God. And so I think that's what's going on here and what's being taught to the catechumens, that in order to have that loosing from spiritual death, they have to seek it through the priests of the church. So this is, I believe, about the sacrament of penance. That's why we have an, such an extended reading at this point in Lent. So, go to confession. Dominus obisum, oremus, populum humilem, salve pacis domini, ud oculum superporum, humiliabis, coriam Christ Deus, preter te domine,